How should I face a new season? This is a question that we find ourselves in. No matter where you are, sometimes in a message, we'll try to take something that's relatable to life, but at best, we'll only relate to about 70 or 80% of people listening. So if I say we're going to do a message today that's going to be talking about parenting, it's going to leave some people out. If I say we're going to talk about just marriage today, it's going to leave some people out. Every single person in this room, online, outside of these walls, doesn't matter, has to face new seasons of life. Would you agree? Let's talk about some of those. First one that we think of is how do I feel about this idea, this look at this first new season right here. How do I feel of this idea of newly married? I have some people here who are newly married or looking forward to be newly married. Think about what happened right before you had life. You had expectations. You had your identity. Then the two become one, and now we're in a new season. Who's married? Show me. Who agrees that we're in a new season when we get married? Life is very different. Here's another one. What about, okay, what about a career change? Maybe I am in college, and I'm excited because I'm interning, and now my career change is I've got my diploma, we do pomp and circumstance, we're all ready, and now I'm in an entry-level position, and I'm in a new season. Do you agree? Or maybe I'm that person who I've been in a career for 5, 10, 15 years, and I get laid off. And now I have to look and say, hey, what's next in my life? It's a new season. Maybe I'm that person who I worked 30 years for a company, and I still need to get to retirement, my position ends, and I say, hey, got to get five more years of working to get to retirement, I'm in a new season. Can we agree? Who's experienced a new vocational season in your life at any point? Everybody, because if you've ever worked, you've gone from not working to working, that's a new season. What about this idea of a new baby? Think about how much different life is pre-baby and post-baby. Let me give you an example. This wasn't in my original text. I'm wearing a different shirt than when I greeted you this morning because during communion, Henry, my two-year-old, was so excited. He's not a baby anymore, but it's a different season once you're a parent. He was so excited to have communion with me that he dumped his communion chalice all over my shirt. (laughs) Can we agree that when you're a parent, it's a new season? Okay, what about this one? Again, we're not going to leave everyone out. What about empty nesters? Where are my empty nesters at? Where are my former empty nesters who the chickens or the little birds came back? Okay, so can we agree that that's a new season? Life was one way, then it changed. How I feel about this, and of course, we don't want to leave out, where are my newly retired or happily retired people? Who's newly or happily retired? Hey, that's a season too, right? The reality is, is in every season of life, we have to deal with this problem, though. Because new seasons affects everybody, but here's a problem that affects all of us. When I go from where I was to where I now am, I have this problem. What's the problem that I have? In the new season, I can survive instead of thrive. I can say, hey, let's think of the new baby. Wow, I'm so excited to have the new baby. Now the new baby comes and no one's sleeping. I'm just in survival mode. Who's been there with survival mode? Okay, can you agree? Now, that's true, but that's a problem because what's difficult during that phase of life? During that phase of life, it's hard to maybe have the greatest marriage or maybe the greatest 
work or the may, maybe the greatest faith because if I'm just caught in survival mode, I'm not necessarily able to have the right mindset of saying, hey, God has wonderful things for me in this season. I want to thrive. Yes, in this season there's new challenges, but I'm not going to be defined by the challenges. I'm going to say, God, you call me to be faithful. I've got this little squishy baby, but here we go. Let's figure out how to have the right mentality. And that happens whether I'm newly married. Think of how that first year of marriage, who remembers that first year of marriage? We just got to survive it, right? Well, I invite you, Scripture's going to show us that actually you can thrive in that season. That, that first year of marriage can be a wonderful Jesus at the center time that can be a truly amazing time, not simply fight to fight, expectation to expectation, angry voicemail to angry voicemail. It can be so much beyond that when we start to say, hey, Lord, how can I, instead of surviving in each season, how can I thrive? And that's with the career change, that's with our empty nesters, that's with our new retirement. Now, I want to give you a superpower that's a theological foundation. It's this idea of piety. Who's heard of the word piety before? So piety, piety is something that we're going to see in Scripture. Piety is an inward and outward devotion to God. That's our theological foundation. Piety is how do I make sure my insides and my outsides, no matter the season I'm in, are following God? How do I make sure that everything starts to line up? Now, if I'm trying to do this in a self-help way, I'm going to fail. Can we agree? If I'm just trying to say, hey, I'm going to white-knuckle my way to having my insides and outsides match. Instead, what I'd invite us to do is we're going to look at, we're going to look at in, so this idea of piety, true inward and outward devotion to God, and we're going to look at how this can be found in Scripture. Who absolutely loves the book of Ezra and you read it all the time? You're missing out. Okay, the book of Ezra is terrific. I want to throw up a graphic on the book of Ezra. I try to break down Old Testament books into usually about four parts with alliteration because who feels like the Bible can be confusing? Anybody ever confused? And that's about the New Testament. The Old Testament is the Wild West. Can we agree? There's like, there's like shekels in there. What's going on with the shekels? Any, where my Bible, through the Bible podcast people. You know, this year, many people in this service and many people in our church are reading through the Bible in a year. We've got little cards. They're bookmarks that you can take, put in your Bible. Right now, we're in May. We're in Chronicles right now. We're about to be in Ezra. And some of us are listening to a podcast on Spotify if you go through our podcast, you will hear that there's all sorts of confusing things in the Old Testament. So let's break it down. The book of Ezra is kind of like the second exodus. How did we get here? So we've got the patriarchs. We've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? You with me there? That happens in Genesis. Then they have to go into Egypt for a 400-year period. Then there's the exodus from Egypt. Now they wander in the desert, and then they come with Joshua into the promised land. You with me? This is the recap. Okay, previously on our TV show. Then, now we have this period of the judges period. I'm going to get to Ezra. Watch. Now we have the judges period where there's cycles of disobedience. Israel has no king, and they really choose to not necessarily have a god either. They go haywire. It's really gory and bloody and crazy. Remember those? Okay, then we enter this period where they have kings. We start out with King Saul then King David, King Solomon. 
Last week, if you were with us, we talked about the split of the kingdom. And now you have the kingdom divide into a northern kingdom, Israel, which is a lot of tribes. Israel at this time was tribes. Ten tribes, two tribes, that's Judah. They split. Israel eventually falls. Judah stays a little longer. Then they go for 70 years to exile to a place called Babylon. You with me? Okay. That's where we find ourselves because at the very beginning of Ezra, we have the return in the first two chapters. This foreign king, this guy Cyrus, says, hey, it's been 70 years. I'm a Persian. We've conquered the Babylonians. They didn't know what they were doing. You all can go home. Why don't you head back to your land? So they do. This group of people, Zerubbabel, say with that with me, Zerubbabel. Try that. Okay, Zerubbabel's the leader. Then Yeshua, did you notice that in the reading, Yeshua? What does that sound like? Jesus. Oh, interesting, interesting. Notice that. Okay, so Zerubbabel, Yeshua, the priests and the Levites and the people return, and now we're going to see this rebuild. Today we're going to be in the third chapter of Ezra. We're going to only look at three verses. Some days we do many, many books. Some days we do many, many chapters. We're just going to do three verses today, Ezra 3, 1 through 3, and you're going to see after this that there's going to be a restoration, maybe there'll be repentance, but there's going to be a need for more. This doesn't get fulfilled. There's still a need for Jesus. There's still a need for the gospel message, and that's lacking at the end of the book of Ezra. But here's our big idea, because what we see in Ezra is that we're in a new season. Okay, if we're in a new season, my big idea is that when I devote my life today to God, I can thrive in every new season doesn't matter if I've got that new baby, that new career change, what have you. The reality is, is that if I'm fixated on the right thing, devoting my life, piety, inward and outward devotion to God, if I'm doing that and I'm continuing to repent and say, hey, I can't, God can, okay, and now I have this opportunity to follow you, doesn't really matter the season and I can thrive in each season. Now, we're going to see this really clearly. So if you say, hey, I'm not exactly sure how to do that, Ezra 3, the first three verses, is going to give you a little bit of a roadmap to how to do this. What can I do to follow? Again, the Bible is not a self-help book. The Bible is not a fact book. The Bible is a truth book. And you're going to see the truth that if I devote my life to God today in exile, I can thrive in exile. If I devote my life today in returning and having this need to rebuild the temple, I can thrive there too. Today, each of us sitting here, we all come from different contexts. No matter where you're going after church today, or if you're listening online and you're listening in 2029, it doesn't matter. No matter where you are today, I can devote my life to God and thrive. It doesn't mean I'll prosper. It doesn't mean material wealth. It means thrive. Live the right way, live with joy. Say, wow, God has great things for me to do today. I can live a life worthy of the calling, and I can live a life that makes a difference. So we're going to pay attention to three things in this text. Again, turn with me to the Old Testament book, Ezra, Ezra chapter 3. We're going to pay attention to the moment, to the movement, and we're going to finally pay attention to the mindset. So we're going to start with looking at the moment. Look in the very first part of this chapter. We're going to be Ezra chapter 3. I'm going to read not even a full verse. In early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns. 
and you're expecting me to say, then blank happened. Let's look at that. In the early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, we see a new context, a new moment that the Israelites find themselves in, okay? So it's very clear, this is our first M we're going to look for, moment. The Israelites had a new moment and a new season. They had been wanting to go home. Who's ever wanted to, maybe you were at summer camp and you got homesick and you said, I just can't wait to go home. Okay, they wanted that for 70 years. For 70 years, I just want to go home. Now they're home. This new moment in this new season. That's what we see. Okay, I told you this is like the second exodus. The first time that the Israelites were in captivity, they were in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. And then Pharaoh released them, and they were able to go to the promised land. This time, they were in exile for 70 years, and then the king released them, and now they're able to go back to the promised land. This is their new moment. Now, each of us finds ourselves in a moment, and here's something we want to think of. Imagine the time you grew up. Now, I'm a millennial. I grew up in the 1990s. Anybody recognize any of that stuff? VHS tapes? Who's still got a VHS tape? Anybody still watch on VHS tapes? I feel like in the 90s, everybody had the Lion King on VHS. It was like standard in every household. We all had the Lion King, and that's just what it was. And that um, 101 Dalmatians we all had as well. So here's the thing. When I look back growing up, we had the Power Rangers. Who remembers the Power Rangers? Yeah, you're missing out if you don't. The reality is, is that we're starting to see this revival of the 80s. Who watches Stranger Things? Anybody watch Stranger Things? I don't get that show. It's not my generation. Because when I look at nostalgia, I look back to the 90s. Now, here's the challenge. There's a dark side and problem with nostalgia. It's really cool to look at things we remember, but we mainly remember the good. The problem is... I fondly remember a time that never really existed when I have nostalgia. When I look back at the 90s and I say, hey, I loved TV in the 90s. Well, there was a lot of really bad TV in the 90s. Well, I really loved movies in the 90s. Well, there was a lot of really mediocre movies that couldn't get made today. Well, I really loved culture in the 90s. Eh, there were a lot of big problems in the 90s. The first thing I remember watching on TV had to do with the Oklahoma City bombing. The 90s were not some beautiful, rosy place, but we look back with nostalgia at a time like the 90s, and we imagine it not how it was. That's the danger that we can face when we're not careful of the moment we're in. If we realize that in the moment that I'm in right now, I can faithfully serve God in every season... I can, by inwardly and outwardly devoting my life to God, I can thrive, not survive in that season. I shouldn't try to recreate the past. I shouldn't try to say, hey, there's something in my family, something in my church, something in my workplace from 1994 that I want to recreate. Oh, I'm looking to just find that, and if I find that, then I'll have the answer. The reality is, is that if I fondly remember a time that never existed, I'm giving up the opportunity to say this, and let's look at this slide right here. I'm looking at this next one right here. In each new season, do I live knowing that God is actively at work? Today, God's actively at work today. I'm here in a context, in a moment, God's actively at work. When the Israelites were in exile, God was working. When the Israelites have returned, 
God is working. They don't get it perfectly, but that's why it's so important to pay attention to the moment. So that's our first thing we'll pay attention to. But also, let's keep reading the text. The next thing, let's look. Here's where it says. So we're going to continue looking in the text. All the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. Let's think about that for a second. When's the last time that you saw a bunch of people on the same page? It doesn't happen, right? Wow. Let's read that again. All the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. Then Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, joined his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his family in rebuilding the altar of God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. So our second thing we want to pay attention to, no matter where you are today, you're in a season. We start by paying attention to the moment, but then we say, am I part of a movement? Am I part of a movement? Okay. So what do we have to look for in this? The reality is, is these people had a unified purpose together. But the unified purpose wasn't some big amorphous, I want to serve God and I'm not sure how. Whoever feels like that. Hey, I want to serve God. I don't know how. Let's try another one. I want to be kind and I want to care about my neighbor. I just don't know how. Anybody ever feel like that? It's okay to feel like these things. What we see with this idea here in Ezra is they've, their unified purpose is not to amorphously fuzzy serve God. It's clearly to do what? Is to go there and to rebuild the altar, to sacrifice on it, and to follow the law of Moses. That's really, really clear, and that's really specific. And the movement, a group of people, is able to come together, not to say, hey, we're getting together and we're going to have a meeting and we're all going to show up, and we're not sure what we're going to talk about, and so we're just going to fill our time, and it's going to be a vacuum, and I don't know where we're going. No, they do something different. They say, we're going to really specifically be part of a movement getting a task done. But the problem is, is we live in the shadow of the movie Field of Dreams. Who loves Field of Dreams? Baseball movie, okay. Field of Dreams has a really famous line, if you build it, that's a problem. Why is that a problem? It's great in the movie. But if I live my life like that in the church, in my family, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, it's a lie, okay? If I build it, they will not necessarily come. Let me tell you a time that in this church that David made a major blunder. When I was about 22, I came home from college, and I had an opportunity to be one of the youth leaders here. And I was really excited because I wanted to have a dynamite youth group. Who thinks it'd be great to have a dynamite youth group? It's a good idea, right? What was David's strategy? David said, hey, at this time we had something called Kids Town. And we had all these houses in the fellowship hall, and they used to, we used to do plays, and you had this big interactive thing called Kids Town. And I said, you know, I believe we can have a movement that's going to love God, and we're going to have a movement of youth. We're going to build a youth group, so you know what we need? Do you think I, I said, hey, we need to get a group of young people together praying? I did not say that. Do you think I said we need to get a group of young people reading the Bible? I did not say. I said we need to build a stage. And so for the next 10 years, we had a stage that we never used. If you build it, they will come is not helpful. That's not what a movement is. Instead, there is a researcher who has a wonderful idea about what actually movements are. And I love this. So look at this. This is a guy, Greg Sattel. He has four ingredients for a successful movement. 
And I'll go over these in a second. Clear purpose, shared values, effective planning, mainstream appeal. Let's talk about what clear purpose is. Clear purpose is saying, okay, I've got this thing that I'm going to do. What's the specific goal of what we're trying to do together? My problem with that stage is I wasn't sure what the goal was, but I thought the stage would be the magic bullet I needed. Okay, clear purpose. What's our next thing? Shared values. The shared whys that unite us in the journey. And as we think in our lives, if you are in a new season of your life, and you're saying, hey, I'm in that moment, if you're part of a movement, there's shared whys that are uniting us all together. Okay, what else is there? There's also effective planning. Are we thinking this through or figuring it out as we go? When I said, let's knock down Kidstown and let's put up a stage, there was no effective planning. What was I trying to do? If you build it, they will come. The reality is, is if I'm going to be part of a movement, there's got to be effective planning. And the final thing is mainstream appeal. How does what we're doing connect with those around us? So using this formula, let's look at how it connects to what they're doing in the book of Ezra. So we'll see this. We'll throw this graphic up on the screen. And what we see is they have a clear purpose. Worship God at the Jerusalem altar. Not amorphously serve God. Not, hey, we probably should do more, but I'm not sure how. Hey, this is clearly what it is. What's the whys, the shared values? Devotion to God, inward and outward, and to his temple. What's the effective planning? Well, we see it right there in the text. They return. They make a really long journey. Open up a map sometime and look how far it is from where they were in exile in Persia all the way to Jerusalem. They return. That's planning. They gather their team. Remember it says they were all gathered in a unified purpose. They scope out their project and they begin. And it has mainstream appeal. A rebuilt altar for them restores a cultural identity for the Israelite people. Now, you can use this at any point in time. You can use these criteria for any effective movement, historical or in your own life. Let's look at a historical one. There's this idea of the Reformation. Who's heard of a guy named Martin Luther? Martin Luther had 95 problems with the church, and so he nailed them on the door. Because he had a clear purpose. And it started this movement, this Reformation movement in Europe. This was about 500 years ago. And they had a clear purpose. Not amorphously, hey, I want to serve God, but I'm not sure how. But hey, let's base Christianity on the Bible only. That sounds pretty good. Following Jesus is based on the Bible, not based on I'm not sure what. What were their shared values? Scripture, salvation, grace, faith. How did they effectively plan without the internet? Who remembers planning things without the internet? You could do it. They did it. We're here because of the Reformation. They had pamphlets. And they had grassroots meetings that started developing. And they had different little cells of people that would be reformers. And they all worked together. And what was the mainstream appeal? This is a mainstream appeal. Imagine if you walked into church and I was speaking Latin. Who can understand Latin? So none of you, that's great. I figured we'd get at least one, and I was going to say, well, so now one of you would understand. So none of you would understand what was being talked about. If I'm preaching in Latin and you only speak English, can you take it all the sermon and apply it to your life? You can't. So there's a mainstream appeal. The Bible in my language is now accessible. 
So our problem today is when we're in different seasons of our life, it's easy to survive instead of thrive. We say that our big idea is, okay, when I have that inward and outward devotion to God, then I can thrive instead of survive. So let's look at my own life. You, each of us are in seasons today, and we'll put this graphic up. So in my own life, what is the clear purpose that God is calling you to do? Let me give an example. Who here lives in a neighborhood? Did you know that we have home groups in this church? Who knows what a home group is? Let's, let's put our hand up if you don't know what a home group is. Let me tell you what a home group is. A home group is where we start a Bible study in someone's house and we invite neighbors. Who thinks that sounds scary? Be honest. Be honest. Okay. Maybe that's the clear purpose that God is saying, hey, that's something clear. That's not amorphously serve God. That's not amorphously be kind to my neighbors. That's saying, hey, God, you're calling me to make a difference in my community. I have a house. I live with neighbors. I can start a small group. I can start a home group. And now I can start to just get to know my neighbors, and I can invite them over for dinner, and we can start to have this. Now, what are the shared values? That's just an example, but we'd love you to do that. Please pray about that. Um, the shared values are the gospel message. How do I effectively plan a home group or anything like that? Maybe it's not a home group. Maybe in my workplace, I'm being called to start eating lunch with my coworkers and not isolating. That's a clear purpose. Maybe in my marriage, I'm being called to do devotions with my spouse. That's a clear purpose. Do you see how these are tiny, small, specific? So I want you to be thinking about this. What in your life, the my life is not David's life. It's the person hearing my life. The effective planning, desire to gather a team, strategize and act. And yes, there will be mainstream appeal. But you got to pray about and say, God, what can I do to connect what you're having me do in this season of my life? Maybe I am a new parent. Maybe I'm newly retired. Maybe I'm an empty nester. Maybe I'm in a new career. Maybe we've got whatever. The reality is, is wherever I am today, if I want to thrive instead of survive, I can pray to God and say, hey, Lord, what are you calling me to do today that's going to clearly start making a small difference? Okay. Now, there's one other thing I want us to pay attention to. So if we're looking, if I'm in a new season and I'm paying attention to the moment, now, if I'm part of a movement, keep doing that. But if I'm not, let's pray to God and say, hey, what small movement can I be part of? And you can say, hey, I'm in church. Who says, hey, I'm in church? You are in church, but that's not necessarily what we're talking about. We're talking about, it's wonderful to be in church that's a starting place, but now God wants to use you not to just be a person sitting in a seat, but now God wants to use you in your community. God wants to use you in your marriage. God wants you to, to use you in your family. God wants to use you in your workplace. God wants to use you in your neighborhood. And it can happen, but there's a big barrier. And so we got to talk about mindset. Let's look at this final part of the text. We're now going to be in verse 3. So we've got this whole thing. Let's just make sure we get what's happening. Zerubbabel and Yeshua and everybody else are there. They're rebuilding the altar. They're getting ready to do it. They're all gathered with a unified purpose. And now they have to be honest about something. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. I want to read that again. Even though 
The people were afraid of the local residents. They rebuilt the altar at its old site. Now I want you to read it with me in three, two, one. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. They were honest about fear. They didn't do this thing of, I'm not afraid. They were afraid. The people were scary. Why were they afraid? Let's talk about this. The Israelites were for 70 years in exile. Their houses, the temple, all of it, do you think it was just unoccupied for 70 years? No. So the Babylonian kings had sent back people earlier, and other people in the surrounding areas had, had started like going in and crouching in the land and saying, wow, I'm going to be a squatter. This is now my land. So it's no longer that they're returning to empty land and populating it. What are they returning to? They're returning to other people living there. Do you think that if I didn't own property for, if I owned it but I didn't live in it for 70 years and I go back and I start building up an altar to God but I'm now in someone's lawn, do you think they're going to like that? They don't, okay? They don't. And you're going to see this is going to be the big conflict of the book of Ezra. Is, and they're actually going to successfully like, write to the emperor and be like, hey, get this to stop. And then it does for like 50 years. And this is a big conflict that they deal with in this book. So if you say, hey, the Bible's not relatable to my life. No, it is. No, it very much is. Hey, have you ever had someone, you wanted to do something really exciting, and you had someone successfully petition your boss to get you to stop? That happens in this book, okay? The Bible's very relatable. But even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they built the altar at its old site. Let's continue forward. Then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and evening. So, they had to be honest about their fear. When I'm in a new season of my life, there are things that are scary. Now you can say, hey, you're selling me a little bit on this idea of doing something in my neighborhood. Who'd like to get to know your neighbors a little better? That sounds good, right? Can we admit it's scary? What if they think I'm weird? What if they think I'm coming on too strong? What if they thought it was really great knowing I was a Christian, but they just didn't really want me to like, bring my views on them? These are all fears we have. And it doesn't mean take a Bible and say, oh, I'm not going to be afraid, and now start whacking them over the head with the Bible. It doesn't mean that at all. Acknowledge that and then say, okay, in my context, what can I be doing? When we think of people in a new season of life who had to deal with this, there's no greater example for our society than in the time of the greatest generation. Who really looks up to the greatest generation? World War II, Okay. When we look at them, it's not that they weren't afraid, it's that they were afraid and they kept going. I want to put up a graphic of a, a Methodist. This is a guy named Sergeant Roddy Edmonds. Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, here's what he was. He had given his life to Jesus, and then he went off to serve in the war, in the Battle of the Bulge. And then he and others were captured, and they were taken by the Nazis to a prisoner of war camp. And now Roddy was just a kind, sweet guy, and he was basically placed in charge by the other men of their group. And so the Nazi commander comes to him and says, hey, before we do anything else, um, we need to figure out where your Jewish soldiers are so we can give them extra special care. Now, Roddy wasn't stupid. He knew exactly what was going on. 
And that was scary because he knew if he said the wrong thing, he would be killed. He also knew that if he said the right thing, he still might be killed. That was a scary moment. But here's what he said. He said, oh, we're all Jews here. And then he started talking about the Geneva Convention. He said, if you shoot me, you'll have to shoot all of us. And after the war, you'll be tried for war crimes. And so then the commander, the Nazi, backed down and was like, oh, sometimes when I simply just acknowledge that something's scary, then God will give me a way forward. Because at that same time, President Roosevelt said the following. He said, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. So my question is, in each new season of life, am I going to confess my fear, or am I going to concede to it? Because there's a lot of scary things. Where are my new parents at that have had kids in the last three, four years? New parents. A lot of scary things of having little kids. Can we agree? Where are my people who have ever been married ever? A lot of scary things that can happen, right? Our spouse now goes through a tragedy, and it's no longer our spouse going through a tragedy. It's us going through a tragedy. In each new season, will I confess my fear, or will I concede to it? And so here's my big challenge for you. Here is it. Am I willing to devote my life to God in this season? No matter where I find myself, am I willing to do it? I want to tell you a final story. It's a two-parter. When I was about 18, 19 years old, I was going through a difficult time, and I briefly took a semester off college, and a really kind family member of mine decided that this person would let me work for them. And I was a really, really bad employee. Do you know why I was a bad employee? Because I was just focused on getting back to college. And I had this girl named Laura that I liked, and I was just thinking about all that. She's my wife, um, and she wasn't at the time. And, and I had all the stuff that I was thinking about, and I wasn't present in the moment at all. And I was, I was not a good employee. Looking back, embarrassing how not of a good employee I was. I wasn't devoting my life to my job or to God in that season. I was simply saying, get me out of here. Get me out of here. I don't want to be in this season. Anybody ever feel like you're in a season you just want someone to get you out of? Hey, call, call the helicopter, give me a rope, and let me climb. Let me get out of there. That's how I felt. But in the years since, I've had several times where I've been in transition points in new seasons where I've said, hey, I'm not going to make that same mistake. Because truthfully, you know who that hurt when I just said, get me out of here? That hurt my family member who was trying to just do a kind thing by having me help out at the job site. If I'm willing to devote my life to God in every season, sometimes I realize, hey, I'm about to enter a new season or I'm at the end of a new season. I've realized over the last few years that I'm also a teacher. My time as a teacher is finite. It is not forever. And so I want to be careful not to be a lame duck, someone who's ever quiet quit, but I want to say, hey, while I'm still a teacher, am I making a difference in kids' lives? And so in the last few years of teaching, after I made the decision not to pursue a long-term career in teaching, but to say, hey, my time in education is finite, what I tried to double down is I've really tried to say, hey, God, every morning I'll pray for my students by name. And I do. And I've tried to say, hey, yeah, I've got some families that I could actually make a little bit of a difference of. Let me go ahead and do that. There's a lot of things I can't change. For you, 
in your life? Are you willing to devote your life to God in this season? Because the reality is, is when I devote my life to God today, this is our big idea, when I devote my life to God today, I will thrive in each new season. And sometimes, we're going to invite the elders of the church forward. We like to give an opportunity to respond. Sometimes we make it, if you're really struggling with something, we want you to come forward. I, I'm not going to do it like that today. The elders will come forward. If you're in a new season, period, you could love it, you could hate it, no one will know by you coming up. If you're in a new season of life, we want to pray for you. Pray for God's blessing in that new season of your life. We'll keep it really, really simple. I invite you. We're going to be singing a song. The elders of our church are gathered for it. We're also going to invite Reverend Lori Eldridge to, to join us too. Come down, pray with one of us just for God's blessing and God's favor as you're entering a new season of your life or you're in a new season of your life. Coming up isn't an admission of, oh, my life's a mess. Coming up is saying, wow, God, thank you for putting other Christians in my life. Let's pray together and let's walk forward.